Hey guys, today on the podcast, we have Rebecca DiCavero. We go way back and we'll tell you a little bit about that at the beginning of this episode. Um, She's someone that's very special to me. I was really excited that she agreed to come on the podcast. She shares um, today about a night in August, 2019, where she and her twin sister were held at gunpoint. So listen in to hear about Rebecca's incredible story of survival and healing. Rebecca, welcome to So What Else. Thanks so much for coming on here. Hi, thanks for having me. Yes, this is amazing. So can you give us just like a quick 30 second intro? Who are you? Well, (laughs) if you can sum it up. (laughs) Well, I used to be your youth group leader. Yes. The best fact about you is that. Uh, But I'm a teacher. I teach high school English and I've taught for many, many years. And I am a mom. I have two kids who are now 16 and 18, which is very upsetting that they've grown up so fast, but they have. Um, And yeah. I don't know what else to tell you. Yeah, no, I love it. All right, so you were my youth leader when I was, what, like middle school and beginning of high school, I want to say? Is that right? Yeah, I just definitely remember during high school. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you probably have lots of embarrassing memories of me, but I have only fond memories of you. No, like for real. I remember (laughs) your whole like wedding planning process. Mm -hmm. I remember when you had your first baby. I remember going to your wedding. That was like one of the most fun nights of my life up to that point. Like so many happy memories. And it's because of you and your husband, Jason, that I went on my very first missions trip Mm -hmm. to the Dominican Republic. I didn't even know what a missions trip was until you guys. And then every summer after that, because you guys kind of like got that ball rolling, I went on a mission trip every single summer after that. And then I ended up working for a mission organization and that's how I met my husband. So basically you set me up with my husband. (laughs) So that is all because of you. And it's because of you. You started me journaling. I have like hundreds of journals from my youth because you encouraged us to journal so many things because of you for real. That's interesting. Um, and you could ask me about this later too, but after this trauma, one of the things that I did was burn all of my journals. Oh my gosh. Every single one, because I had this, just this real sense, like anything can happen at any time. Right. And and all of that would be left behind. And Jason, as you might remember, is not a reader. So I have no concern about him ever picking up anything to read it. He barely reads text, but, um, I just had this real sense, like, do I want that all to be sitting there for my kids to read for all these people? Because journaling is where you're just so vulnerable and honest and you're not really writing for an audience. And so, um, so we got, I had like several plastic bins of them. We got them all together and birthed them. You know what? That's true. I remember one time saying to Scott offhandedly, like, yo, listen, somewhere in my parents' house is like bins of my old journals. Like, I just want you to know, like, if I were ever to die, like, you can read them, but like, please don't. And also like, don't hold anything against me. Yeah. Yeah. Like (laughs) reading to everybody. (laughs) Yeah. Like podcast about them. (laughs) Exactly. Oh my gosh. You just kind of scared me though. Like, I think I might go hunt those down. It it was real epiphany. My sister got rid of hers as well. Okay. We're going to get into that. (laughs) Why it is that you're saying that, but that's, you really gave me something to think about. Mm -hmm. So one of like the most fun facts about you is the fact that you are a twin, an identical twin. Yeah. Right? Yes. Who's older? I'm five minutes older. Okay. And so I mean. I would tell you that my sister, Carrie, is the dominant twin. Oh, okay. Okay. Say that. Do you feel that way? Like. I don't think one of us is more dominant than the other. I think we just have, um, in some ways, we have different personalities about certain things, but we also are very alike and look enough alike that she'll go to the mall and she'll come home and she'll be like, I can't believe it. I saw one of your students. They were yelling your name. Oh (laughs) my gosh. She's very private. She doesn't like to be recognized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm always like, can you just wave and smile? Just pretend it's fine. Yes. And so that's what she usually will do. But um, yeah. 
I remember like, so, cause your sister always lived far away. Like when you were my youth leader, like we had never met her or anything like that. And at your wedding, I heard her like talk behind me and I assumed it was you. Your voices were identical. And I turned around and I was like, <gasps> like it was jarring to me. Yeah. Even my parents can't tell our voices apart. And one between the two of us, we have seven kids and only one of them can tell our voices apart on the phone. Oh my so, gosh. you know, usually like if her phone's ringing, it's one of her kids, I could pick mm. up and talk and they don't know. But this one, the youngest one, he has always known. That's and funny. Like, oh, Auntie Becky. <laughs> you know, he just knows. That's so funny. Yeah. Did you guys like trick your teachers and your parents and stuff like that when you were little or were you nice? Oh, you remember me, Caitlin. I yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> no. uh, wait, what's your Enneagram number? Do you know? Are you an Enneagram yeah. person? I wonder what you would be. Maybe you'd be a one. I'm a one. A one is like a perfectionist, like lists. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like that's a very like teacher type personality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So a few years ago, you and your sister lived through like quite an ordeal beyond. Mm -hmm. Take, Take us back before you get into like the night that we're referring to kind of give me some background information. So like you and your sister were both married with kids and like living in the same neighborhood, right? We actually were living next door to each other. We both moved to the same city. We had houses built next door to each other. And, you know, our backyards were fenced in together. Um, We had a, you know, little stone walkway between our houses. So we really wanted to raise our kids together. Yeah. And we ended up really doing that in a lot of, a lot of ways. And we always, they'll always call us, you know, me there, I'm their second mommy Same to my kids. So we kind of made like our own little, little commune. Yeah. That's really, that's a dream. Honestly. I mean, like now finally, like we kind of laugh too, because up here, me, my parents and me and Emily and Matt, all moved and we're all within like a mile of each other. And Emily always says, she's like, don't tell people that we sound like freaks, like that. We all like wanted to live so close to each other. I'm like, whatever. It's so nice. Like I can like, Oh, I know. I think it's the funniest thing. Absolutely. But it's like last night, Emily was able to call me and she was like, I'm not going to get home till late. Can I'm so sorry. Can you go walk my dog? And I'm like, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's literally down the street. So mm-hmm. go walk Penny. It's not a big deal. So we love it. But anyway, so I love that. So you guys had houses next to each other. So then tell me, so she was married, you're married. We were both married and we had been here um, living next door to each other for about 15 years, actually. Wow. And my kids were, well, uh, my daughter was not even one when we moved here. My son was not even two. She had one of her children that was born here. So for our kids, this is home. This is what Mm -hmm. they always, they've always known. Absolutely. Absolutely. So tell me about, um, your sister's relationship with her husband. What was the situation there? Um, he was, um, a widower. Okay. He was uh, a little bit older than us and he was Jamaican. So there were some cultural differences and different expectations for marriage, parenting, women, that kind of stuff. Um, And we kind of knew that from, I guess, the beginning. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, my husband, Jason, was the one who would, you know, take all the kids to Carowinds and go to the bounce houses. And I mean, he did a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, and even when we went on a vacation together and stuff, a lot of times her husband would not go with us because he was just kind of, um, uh, I don't know. He was definitely a homebody. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Say. Yeah. Yeah. So like not super social, like you didn't feel like very close to him necessarily. No, no. I don't think we were very close to him. My sister Carrie's very close to my husband and mm-hmm. we're all very close to the kids, but he was, um, I think he, when they lived, they had lived originally in Florida and there's a large Jamaican community there. Okay. Here where we are now, there's really no Jamaican community. So it kind of make, made him the odd man out in a lot of ways, like yeah. even getting Jamaican food or things like sure. that. Um, and uh, just being in the South, I think there's a lot of uh, racial tension and a lot of cities, even though they don't appear to be, are actually very segregated. Mm. And, um, 
which we didn't really realize we did choose an area that is probably more diverse and more integrated than any other area in the city, but that's still, um, that still is an issue and something that not only he had to deal with, but my sister's children who are all biracial. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So the night in question that we're talking about, what year was that? Remind me. I have a tattoo. Oh, it was, um, August 2nd, 19, 2019. Okay. So in 2019, what was going on with them at that point? Um, you know, my sister had been, she was very committed to remaining married, even Mm -hmm. though things weren't always great and things were difficult. He had never been physically violent. Um, he was just a very different person and he was definitely a very, very jealous. And Mm. so as women, you know, American women tend to be very independent. My sister and I are very independent, but I think culturally that was a, a difficulty, So, um, a lot of times he didn't like that. We were going out to get our nails done, going out to get a massage, going out like, cause you know, he felt she should be home. Okay. Um, she was also the, the breadwinner he would have, he had served in the military. Um, so he had, he had kind of odd jobs and stuff like that. And she had a very high powered, high paying job. So that, I think that kind of dynamic was going on. Um, but they were together. Yeah, they were together. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then take us to that night, like set it up. Like, where were you? Where was she? What was going on? So they had been having these kind of issues and, um, she had told him he needed to leave that morning and he agreed to leave, but only if he could take his gun with him and his gun had always been in the safe. So for years it had been in the safe and, but he said he was going to leave. He was going to go find another place to live. He was going to agree to being separated. Okay. And um, so we left. He left for work. And then he came back in the early evening, maybe like six, seven o'clock, something like that, which we thought he might, but he wasn't supposed to. He had said he was not going to come back, but he did come back. So my sister, she called the police and asked them to come out. They came out and they basically told her there was nothing they could do. That, you know, it was his residence as well, that there was nothing they could do to make him leave the premises. And they told her to go get a restraining order. Okay, so she didn't have the restraining order. Okay, so they were having issues where he was like keeping her up, berating her, like jealousy, like tense, like things were bad. She wasn't able to sleep, couldn't get her work done. He was being, there were problems. So then she had said, let's consider a separation. He left, came back, even though he wasn't, he, she had asked him not to. And then she Mm -hmm. called the police and they said, the only way that you'll get him, you'd be able to get him to not come here is if you have a restraining order. That's right. Got it. Okay. So she went in the middle of the night, like, I want to say maybe 1030 at night, 11 at night. She went um, and there was an emergency restraining order that was put in place. But the police officers said they could not serve it in the middle of the night. They couldn't serve it until the morning. (sighs) Yeah. So she came home at about 1130, maybe a little bit closer to 12. She came Mm -hmm. home. And she decided she was going to go into her house and she was going to get some clothes and some different things and come spend the night at my house. Yeah. So, and I asked her, you know, I, if she wanted me to go with her to get things from her house, she said, no, she would be fine. And he was in uh, there. He was in there. Yeah. And she knew he was in there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. But I think it's, it is important to remember that she had never, um, He's very powerful, very strong, very incredibly athletic. Yeah. Um, but he had not been physically violent with mm-hmm. her ever. So it was a little bit of a jump for, he might've been controlling, but sure. it was a jump to think that he was going to be physically aggressive with her. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I came back to my house, her son, who was 17 at the time, um, said he was going to go help her. And I said to him, uh, Amias, remember, and he just said it right for me because he said, I remember, I remember it's really hard for women to leave 
men and the most dangerous time in a woman's life is when she's leaving her oh, husband. Wow. And I said, that's right. So I said, and I've told him that before. Yeah. Uh, and he said, um, and I said, so do not engage. Like I said, if your dad is being aggressive, if anything happens, you need to come over and get help. Do not get involved. Yeah. He, he left. And, um, I almost called my parents. I remember standing by my bed, almost calling my parents and who live far, far away, but I was up North, but I wanted to say to them, if something's going on, I'm a little nervous. If something happens, I just want you to know. And, um, but I didn't, I thought, no, that's silly. Nothing's ever happened. They had had short separations in the past and nothing had happened that was actually dangerous, even Mm -hmm. though I had this sense that it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I put my phone down, all of a sudden I just heard my nephew screaming for help out front. And so I went downstairs, went down the stairs, the, the door was in front of me. I opened the door and I saw him running towards my house, screaming, help call 911. And his father was behind him dragging my sister. He had her by like the neckline of her shirt and was dragging her. And he, he, um, he shot his gun. I thought he shot it in the air. My sister says he shot the ground. I have no idea. They never found the bullet, but he shot, he shot his gun. So I dragged Amias inside. I shut the door. And then my kid, one of my kids, my son was there and one of her children, a daughter. So these are all teenagers. Yeah. And I basically screamed, get out and started pushing them towards the back door. We had a, a glass slider. Yeah. So they just went flying out the door. Uh-huh. I was almost to the door because I, I knew that it was not safe for me to stay there and I need to get out and get help. But my brother-in-law started yelling at me and started shooting my floor to get me. So he came into your house. Yeah. He came and brought her in. Oh yeah. So the, the initial thing was happening outside. You get your kids out. He comes into your house. Oh, he was dragging her over there. Okay. his, His intention was to hold us hostage and then to shoot us and then shoot himself. Oh my gosh. That was what his plan was. All right. So your kids get out. He comes in, he screams your name and starts shooting. Mm -hmm. And so what did you do? Cause he he wasn't ready to, he wasn't ready to, um, finish. He just wanted me to stop. Okay. So, um, he kind of looked around and, and I didn't realize this at the time, but in retrospect, he had had 20 years of military service. And I think it's not surprising where he put us. So my kids, your kids might do this. They had set up a tent in the living room. Oh yeah. So he basically, and they had pushed two couches together. So he basically took us behind the tent so that no one could see us. We were not visible (sighs) from outside and we were sitting across from him. So we were on one couch next to each other, my sister and I, he was across from us, but because my kids had pushed the couches together, our knees were right there together. We were yeah, like yeah. all together. Yeah. You know? um, what were he, you thinking in that moment? Um, I was, we were, we were really scared. Like we felt like he had passed the point of no return. Like yeah. he had used his gun. He had taken out his gun. He had used right. his gun. So this wasn't something where he could just back down. Right. Um. So we knew it was, it, we knew it was really serious. Yeah. Um, like I said, he really likes, like to talk. <laughs> and um, so he did, he started talking. He, I, I remember certain things he said. I remember he, he called me a wicked woman over and over and over again. Um, he believed that I was helping my sister have an affair and cheat on him, <sighs> which is absolutely untrue. But so he was just asking us like, where do you go? Where do you go in the afternoons? And you're gone for two hours. And we were like, we went to get our nails done. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But he just, he just kept asking. We didn't really understand um, some of the questions he was asking. We didn't even understand what he was wanting us to say or, and I remember I just, I, I was sitting next to my sister and I knew, and I guess it's a twin thing. Like I felt like I was trying to like move my foot to touch her foot. Cause I knew if I did that, she would know what I was thinking, but I could, I couldn't like, <sighs> so, um, she was trying to talk him down. She was like, yeah, you know, mother think he was very superstitious. Um, he, his family had grown up Protestant, but he had a lot of, because culturally he had a lot of superstitions. So like he believed that his mom, you know, could come visit him even though she had died. And okay. You no, know, he had just, so my sister was like, 
trying to figure out how to get him to back down. So she yeah. was saying, you know, what would your, what would your mom think about this? Yeah. Um, and then she, she called her son and her youngest son who was at a friend's house because my brother-in-law loved him, was very attached to him Okay, in a way that he wasn't to any of the other kids. Not that he didn't care about or love his kids, but that kind of almost like mama love that you yeah. have with your kids. Um, he had that for um, his youngest, Brandon, who's the baby of the family. Mm-hmm. So she felt like she felt like he would be able to get through to his dad. Like, yeah, because his dad was just so close to him. And so she said, um, she got on the phone. She said, daddy is, he's got a gun. He's going to kill us. And, um, and he had told us that he had, um, you know, said that that was his intention. He was going to kill us and he was going to kill himself and that my sister loved me too much. And so he wanted to to kill me. Which was just, I know my sister says when, during that time, all she could think about is the fact that there would be seven children without mothers, without a dad, like, um, just a huge, huge loss and such a selfish action. How old is Brandon? Was Brandon at that time? I would say he was 11, maybe. Oh man. Okay. So what did he do when she called him? Well, so she, you know, my sister said, um, you know, daddy's about to shoot us. You've got to tell him not to. Ugh. Brandon just started begging his dad, please, please, yeah, yeah. please don't. And I will say before I finish with that part, like, I think a lot of people might be very judgmental about that because in retrospect, you look and you're like, well, would you really want to call your kid and have them exposed? But I think my sister felt like she could get him, she could de-escalate the situation. Yes. A hundred percent. A lot of the the police officers who we've talked to since things, they've really felt like that was a very understandable action that she took yeah, uh, and was a, a good way to try to de-escalate, but that's not what happened. <laughs> so, well, and the other thing, just to say, mm-hmm. I don't think that anybody can pass judgment on somebody who has a gun being held to their head. I mean, right you, no one knows what they would really do. You know what I mean? Right. So I'm sure that it's like, I totally understand her logic in that. Yeah. But, all right, go on. Um, so he, as we were, as Brandon was on the phone, just like a few seconds after Brandon started saying, please, please. He just took his gun, put it up to my legs. So it was touching my legs and just shot me. No warning, nothing. Just out of, just out of nowhere. Brandon's on the phone. That's correct. Where in your leg? Um, it was on the side of my knee. It ended up going through both of my legs. So I had four <sighs> different, um, uh, you know, like spots wounds. in my leg. Because like an entrance and exit and entrance and exit. Yeah. What did so, that feel like? I mean, I can't even imagine. It was <laughs> it was um, burning. I burnt. <sighs> my students ask me now all the time, like we're reading like different yeah, yeah. novels where there's like something about guns. And of course they they have no boundaries at all, which is fine. I'm glad that they know that they can talk openly with me, but they'll yeah. always, so what does that feel like? I'm like, I think it feels different depending on your, where in your body it is. Yeah. And, um, probably for different people, it's different, but I felt just this horrible burning cessation. Ugh. So, um, my sister immediately hung up the phone and which left Brandon not knowing <sighs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Not knowing what had happened. Right, of course. Also, our three kids who had run out the back door had called 911. They all heard that shot. They had no idea who who it was, who was dead, who had been shot. They had no idea. Oh my gosh. And I think that's one of the worst parts, like in terms of trauma for our kids. Um, I'm sure. Just that time period where they honestly just, they just didn't know what had happened and if yeah. we were okay and they didn't know. Um, so then he just kept on talking. <laughs> so for some reason- I mean, So you're shot, you're bleeding, yeah, like, bleeding. and he's talking. He's still talking and the, um, the, for some reason there was a towel on the floor. I don't know, something about what my kids were doing. And so I just grabbed it and like wrapped it around. I only knew one of my legs had been injured at that point. Okay. Um, so I just kind of wrapped it around it. And I 
as he was talking and talking and just sort of like berating us pretty much and continuing to tell us that he was going to kill us. And if the kids had called the cops, as soon as he knew the cops got there, we would be dead. And, you know, I just had this really, I had kept imagining like, or thinking through, where is he going to shoot me? Like, is he going to shoot me in the heart? Is he going to shoot me in the head? And how long will this burning sensation last before? Yeah, I yeah, yeah. Dead? Like, just kind of like, it, I was very aware of that situation. And um, as a teacher, I had gotten active shooter training several times at several schools I've worked for. And I remembered that one of the things they had talked a lot about is in the studies that they've done about active shooters, especially in school situations, people who don't act end up dead. And they, in active shooter training, they go all the way back to Columbine. They talk about all those kids who are in the library who are shot. And the fact that there was literally an exit door right there from the library to go outside. Oh my gosh. But the teachers relied on, and I don't blame them for this and the cops don't either, but they relied on their, fire training and their earthquake training and so sure. hide, you yeah, know? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And then they also, in the active shooter trainings that I've done here, they talk about the Virginia tech shooting and yeah. they go through every room where that gunman was and what the people in that room were doing and the people who didn't take action ended up dead. Wow. So they literally go through and say, here's how many people were in this room. Here's how many people ended up dead. Here's how, one room, there was actually a Holocaust survivor who was the professor. Wow. And he, when he heard the gunshot, he didn't assume it was fireworks or whatever other people assume. He immediately barricaded the body, the door with his body and then sent his kids out the window. Yeah. And almost all of them survived. And I think, I think that's because he knew, like he had, yeah. because he knew what people were capable of. He knew that other people really would go through with it and kill you. Sure. Yeah. So anyway, in this training, one of these, they were like, you had, they teach you now, um, to basically flee if you can, right. Uh-huh. If you can't, you barricade yourself. And if you have to, you fight back. That's okay. what you to do. And they said, it's better to, um, throw a stapler at somebody than to try to talk them down or try to do anything. And so I knew, I knew we had to like fight back. We could not just sit there. Or we would be dead. So um, he was waving the gun around. It was a pistol. He was like waving around and um, he put it down by his side. And, you know, and one of those times when he put it down his side, I literally just threw my body on it. Wow. Um, And I screamed like, Carrie, help me. We have to fight. (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah. So we ended up just rolling around on the floor, basically. Um, (sighs) I remember... And I was trying to pull the trigger and I couldn't, um, I think it might've been like, um, blocked or I don't know. Yeah. But my sister at one point, and we're just screaming, screaming at one point, she's like, he's biting me. He's biting me. And, and afterwards she had bite marks from like weeks and weeks all down her arms. But but I thought, well, that's a really great idea. Yeah. I bit him as hard as I could. Caitlin. Nice. I bit him so hard and it shocked him and he let oh. me go. Oh, so wow. I was standing up and Carrie turned to me. I had lost my glasses. I couldn't see anything, but she just screamed, run, run, run. So I ran outside and there were cops all over the place. The police oh, my all God. over the place without their lights on. And, and I just said, please like go in now. He's going to kill her. My sister's probably already dead. I started screaming and screaming for them to go in. Oh, so. And so, okay. So you get out, mm-hmm. you're screaming at them to go in. Did, were your kids anywhere to be seen? Like were they, or you didn't know where they were? No, okay. I didn't know where they were. They were actually, sadly, they had gone to several neighbors who would not open the door for them. Cause they heard the gunshots. Yep. Oh and there's actually, there's actually one, um, 911 call that was published where a neighbor saying that they will not get involved and they will not go outside. They just want the police to know that there had been a gunshot. So, but they oh did. Oh my gosh. Uh, a few houses down, they did get someone to open the door for them. And then okay. they were there. And apparently when I was shot and they heard that gunshot, my, the boys wanted to come back to try to help. Yeah. And yeah. The, the mom there, she was great. And she basically told them they couldn't do that, you know? Yeah. 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 But at the time, I mean, I knew they were safe. Like I knew we didn't have any kids in the house. Like 
it, but my sister was obviously still, still in danger. Yeah. So you're, you scream for the cops to go in and what did they do? At that, pretty much at that moment, I heard gunshots. Oh, I thought my sister was dead. I started just screaming, crying. I was very upset. Um, but what had happened was that her husband had come around the corner to look to see where I had gone. Oh. I thought I was still in the house because really, I think that's a probably a normal um, assumption that I wouldn't leave my sister. And the only reason I did is because I had had this training and I was so aware, like it wasn't like I was just acting on instinct. I was, you know, very aware of, okay, this is what I've got to do. This is what I was trained to do. And so, and you get out, you know, mm-hmm. so um, he had come around, he didn't see me. He turned back to her and he started to lift the gun to shoot her. And there was a police officer who was about to retire. This was his last shift. Stop. And, <laughs> no, it's true. He was out back. He could see because uh, my brother-in-law had come out from behind the tent. He could see him with a raised gun and he shot him through the sliding door. And then my brother-in-law, while he was laying on the floor, tried to pick up the gun to shoot my sister again. And my, so the guy shot him again. And then my sister ran over and kicked the gun out of his hand and threw it into the backyard. So, yeah. And then all the cops, I mean, they just like kicked down the door and they went in. And what was terrible at that moment is that I, I realized my kids might be in the backyard and I was very nervous. I'm always very aware of the fact that my nephew in particular, I think he was, I want to say he was 17 at the time is biracial. He identifies as black. And I was very aware that that could be really triggering that the police officers would not intentionally hurt him, but they might see him as a danger if they didn't know he was in the backyard. Sure. So he started screaming like, you know, our kids' names and saying, hands up, hands up. And yeah, my yeah. Kids are in the backyard. And, but then um, a neighbor, the neighbor who had them was down the street and she started calling to me and saying, they're fine. They're here with me. I've got them. Oh my gosh. I have chills. I mean, oh. now where was Jason, your husband during this whole thing? So Jason had gone to meet his family on a vacation at the beach with my daughter. Oh my gosh. So, um, I don't know if you remember, but we're not very like codependent. We're very independent as well. And I was actually doing, um, teaching summer camp. Okay. And so I couldn't have gone. My yeah. son had a job. He couldn't go, but Jason wanted to go spend time with his family. So I was like, sure, go ahead, have fun. So he okay. was not here, which is probably a good thing in retrospect, but um, yeah. I don't think he could have done anything. I think he probably would have been shot on the spot. So, um, oh my gosh, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So your husband and your daughter weren't there. Okay. So then the cops rush in now, like, do you remember, like something that I think is very interesting is that you have like very clear memories of this whole thing. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like a lot of people say like when they were like in a situation like that, they're like, and then I don't know, I blacked out. You know what I mean? But like the fact that you were shot Mm-hmm. But you still, like, were thinking through your active shooter training, like, knew to lunge for him, ran out, got, like, you remember all of these things. Like, you were very clear mentally through the whole thing. So then I what? We have kids. We have little kids. Like, yeah. I think, I'm glad I knew some ideas about what to do. But yeah. on the other hand, I think that mother instinct of, like, yeah. not only one of us, it's one thing if one of us dies, like, because the other one is there, mm-hmm. you know? So, um, and my sister says that she's always like, she said she was sitting thinking like, what do I do? Because at least one of us has to get out of this alive mm-hmm. for the kids, you know? Oh my because gosh. Yeah. At least it would be someone, you know, absolutely and close to each other's children. Um, so I think that was a, of course, a huge motive, huge motivating factor. Absolutely. So, so- then what happened in that aftermath? Like, did you just get like shoved in an ambulance and taken away? Or like, do you remember like what happened then? Like once the cops go in and he's obviously dead. He wasn't dead right away. We didn't oh. know. We did know he had been shot and we knew pretty quickly that he was dead. Um, okay. 
a year later, they relate released. I mean, like 40 hours of footage of body cam. And so what we saw where we were able to see, actually, my sister didn't watch it, um, but I did. And I saw the, the officers when they came in, I saw that my brother-in-law was actually still alive for a little while and that he was, um, they didn't bring him outside, but he died quickly, like within two or three minutes. But I have to tell okay. you, Caitlin, I was glad he was alive when I saw that video because I wanted him to know that he had not won. Yeah. He, you know, he definitely died knowing I had gotten away, but yeah. for him to know he had not been successful and that the cops were there, I wanted that. Like, I'm glad those were his dying. That's his dying memory. Not thinking he had been successful. Totally. Or, you know, he had won that and taken us away from our children. So um, as terrible as that sounds, I was. No, that I doesn't was sound terrible. Really quite happy <laughs> to see Absolutely. that he had, had a few moments of being aware of what had happened. Totally. Now, did your sister end up getting shot at all? No, she did not. Okay. So he never, okay. So you, how long were you and your sister still like on the scene before they kind of took you away? Or did you get to see your kids before you went to the hospital? I, they kind of kept us separated because they wanted us to be able to give statements. Right. Um, I, I remember laying on the, the sidewalk and a neighbor a friend of ours from, well, not like a acquaintance, I guess. Sure. Yeah. Out. And she, I was just laying there and she was patting my hair and talking to me. And then she was like, asked me where Jason was, asked me for his phone number. She's like, I will stay up all night to get a hold oh. of him. And I, I just, there were some things like that, that people did that were just extremely meaningful, especially in light of the fact that there were other neighbors who wouldn't let our kids in the door. No kidding. Um, so yeah. But um, I didn't find out till later, but her youngest son, who was spending the night at a friend's house, at the moment that uh, the phone, uh, when Carrie hang, hung up the phone, um, that dad hopped in the car and drove down here. And he oh, was wow. outside of the police barricades. We just didn't know. Uh, and he ended up after my kids, they all, everybody went to the police station, except for me, I went to the hospital. But after they were um, questioned and gave statements, he took them all home. Okay. Which was another one of those, like, just very kind things yeah. for someone to do that they didn't have to have to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I was taken, yeah, to the hospital, the ambulance. I was actually taken in the same, to the same hospital he was taken, Ugh. which was a little bit like, yeah, I knew he was dead, but it was still a little bit like traumatizing to for know sure. he was there. And because it was a criminal act, they had to do like a pretty invasive check. Like they had to make sure that I hadn't been raped or I had oh. all these other things. So, you know, they were cutting my clothes off and they were, because this wasn't just an injury, you know, sure. it was a crime. And so I had a certain police officer who was with me the entire time and couldn't leave until I had given my statements. I wow. couldn't, you know, my sister came to the hospital, but they wouldn't let anybody in, you know, initially to see me until all of that had been done. Um, the bullet was, it had gone through one of my legs, then through the other one, it was right under the skin of one of my legs. So they ended up taking it out, which I was really happy. A lot of times they leave bullets in. Oh. So I was really happy yeah. that, that they did that. Um, and I, by some miracle, it didn't hit anything. Like there are certain things that could have hit my legs. It could have actually been fatal. There was someone in the news, um, shortly after that, who died from a bullet wound to the legs like mine. Wow. Um, so people, they were really surprised in the hospital that I had, it had been a shot that had missed a lot of what would have been like really traumatic and tragic. Yeah. Did you need surgeries and stuff? Not initially. They actually sent me, they actually sent me home. That night? Uh, yeah. Well, they were going to send me home. Um, sometime in the middle of the night and I, they had me walk like to try to see, and I just have blood all over the place. It was bleeding, bleeding. So they did admit me, okay. but I was home later that day. Um, and then I did have complications where, you know, it got infected and I had to go in for like five days maybe and have multiple surgeries and things. Uh, yeah. So it kind of looks like a big ice cream scoop has been taken out of one of my legs. Okay. And then the other ones are just like kind of just little scars because they were just entry or exit wounds. 
Okay. So today you have full function of your legs. Like okay. you don't have like physical issues yes. from that day. No, I don't. I mean, it's just a scar. So I have, I have healed and my students, I have some of them that I had that year. And then I have, they're still in the school. They are just graduating this year. And I have a couple of them will say to new kids to the school. Misty Guerrero is the only teacher who will be writing quizzes from a hospital bed after she's been <laughs> oh shot. Oh my, yes. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> that is true. Very dedicated. So had you guys... Like, do you feel that that night he was having like some kind of like psychiatric break or like, did, was there any indication that he had had like a mental illness or like, what do you attribute that to? There was no indication that he had had any sort of a mental illness prior to this. Um, when they did all the toxicology, there was nothing in his system, which we knew would happen. Um, but the way that he was behaving and talking and his body language and things like that. It was obviously something had happened, um, where he was not, he was not himself. There were lots of times when he was unpleasant, but this was, uh, the, the level of aggression. And, uh, I know my sister said when she had gone home to get her clothing before this happened, he came into the, she was in the garage. She hadn't even gotten to the house and he came behind her and she said he was crab walking. He was walking sideways, all hunched down. So, I mean, and yeah. I didn't see that, but I, I definitely knew this was not, something had been triggered, you know, for him to yeah. be behaving in this way. But I don't, I don't know what it was. I don't right. know. That's so interesting and mm-hmm. scary. So the aftermath for you and your sister, I'll start with you. Mm-hmm. What was your emotional, spiritual, mental recovery like? Like, I imagine, like, do you have PTSD? Like, what has that been like for you? So I think that our situation is different than a lot of women who experience this because we didn't die and we were triumphant. So it was extremely empowering for us. Yeah. Um, We were not fearful. In fact, she had a bedroom on the first floor and I didn't. So when I went home, I stayed almost a month in her house, sleeping in her house. And that did not bother me at all. The house where it happened. Well, it happened, no, no, my, it happened at your house. Yeah. It yeah, happened yeah. Okay. At my house, But going and staying in his house was, yeah, it, it just didn't bother me. Um, I think a lot of that. So I think one thing that has helped us was that we felt very empowered by it. The other thing that, helped us is that we're so close. And most people, when something like this happens, they will say no one else can understand. Mm. Right. But we understood. And so every day for at least a year, we talked about this. Why did this happen? Oh, do you remember he said this or, but so most people don't have that. They might have a therapist, but even a therapist hasn't experienced what you've experienced. Totally. So for us to have that kind of relationship where we were able to just talk to each other constantly about this and to know that we were fully understood, I think contributed a lot to our mental state and our healing process in a way that other people, they might not have that um, just because they've experienced it on their own. That's very, very interesting. And like the fact that you experienced this trauma with your twin sister, like that's a relationship that like a lot of people don't even understand the closeness of, you know what I mean? Like, because that's actually really interesting. I don't know. I can't think like on the spot, but I don't think that anybody else that I have interviewed with a trauma story has gone through it with someone else. Do you know what I mean? Like they come out on the other end and it was like, I experienced this alone. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Which is very isolating. It is isolating. And I did feel like there were things, I still feel like Jason doesn't totally understand what happened that he- absolutely. But I think rather than that destroying our relationship, (laughs) I have this other relationship with someone who totally and completely understands it. And um, I can say out of the blue, hey, I was thinking about this or, you know, I think that that is, it was like we had talk therapy every day with each other. Totally. So it's like, I I like how you 
how you said that, like, instead of this then being a negative thing on your marriage where it's like, you're like, I'm trying to process this with you and you can't process it with me because you weren't there. It's like, you can just process it with your sister, like who's right there with you. That's amazing. So did you guys, did you go to therapy? Did you feel like you needed trauma therapy or anything like that? Or did you feel like you and your sister were able to process it? So we did not, we both saw therapists once and we took all of our kids to see a therapist. Um, everyone we saw and everybody saw somebody different. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone that we saw said that unless our kids were experiencing or we were experiencing like PTSD or something like that, that it would actually be more traumatizing for our kids to start processing that. Oh. And they, they felt, and this was across the board, what we were told by different people at different organizations they said, you know, you really need to let your kids come to you when they're ready to talk about this and ready to get help rather than to kind of like force it. Yeah. And they basically said that when kids, especially right after it, when they're asked to like relive it and tell the story again and again and things like that, that it's actually re-traumatizing them. Mm. So we did follow that advice. And since then, a couple of our kids have, um, you know, had some therapy and stuff like that, but we've really let the kids guide that in terms of when they're ready to talk about it. Jacob is um, my son who's 18 now. He's at a middle college. So he's taking some high school, some college classes. And for his English class last year, he wrote about this when they oh. did a personal narrative. And um, and it was interesting. Like it was interesting to hear some things, some details from his perspective about mm-hmm. how he had felt and stuff like that. And we talked about it. And once in a while, one of the kids will just say, hey, um, I have a question about this and we mm-hmm. just try to make it like a very casual conversation, like whatever you want to talk about it, but not to push. Yeah. That's really interesting. That's like a really good insight. Um, now what about your sister? Like, has it been the same for her? Like, has she, do you feel like you and your sister have, have kind of like processed it similarly? Cause then in the process, she also lost her husband, which I'm sure is like very complicated to try to like grieve that because he tried to kill her. Like that's a really Mm -hmm. odd thing I'm sure for her to kind of move through. Yes. I I think that her response has been a lot like mine, which doesn't surprise me. Like we've experienced everything together forever, but um, we did have, and I'll come back to that part about kind of losing husband and father, but Mm -hmm. um we both did have one trigger that would cause us to sort of start going back and rehashing and remembering. Um, for me, every time I would walk on those stones over to her house, you know, we had stepping stones that we've had for 15 years, but that was where I had seen him dragging her. That's where the real shock moment came for me. Mm -hmm. So when I would go across there, I would start, you know, processing and going back over all the details in my mind and my sister had a similar experience, but for her, it was when she um, would see news stories, which are happening all the time, about men who are um, attacking their families. Mm. So um, we actually, and this will surprise you because you know me well, but um, we actually went to a hypnotist. Oh. And so my sister did it first and she was like, listen, I know you're going to think this is crazy. And I know, you know, Caitlin, having grown up in a very conservative Christian home that yeah. there's a lot of stigma attached to this. And like, is this demonic? Is this okay? Um, but I, this woman spoke to me on Zoom. This happened on Zoom. Okay. Uh-huh. And, you know, I'm naturally extremely skeptical, but she, um, she basically had me replay this event. Mm-hmm. So um, she had me just not say it, think it. Like, so go through in my brain, this whole memory, him coming across, all that. Then after I'd done that, she said, okay, now I want you to turn it into black and white and then replay it again. And then she said, okay, now I want you to imagine that happened on the sidewalk across the street and replay it again. And I did. And then she said, now what I want you to do is replay it on your neighbor's lawn. And so I did this, like it's a series of this. Um, I didn't feel like in any way that I was hypnotized. Um, you know, you imagine like, you're going to go like, I don't know, your eyes are going to roll back and you're whatever. Yeah. But what I believe that she did was that she, the way I think of it is like your brain being kind of like a filing cabinet, which I know is kind of an old school way to think about your brain, but no, it's not. she, She took that file that was 
my brother-in-law with my sister on those rocks, stepping stones, and she moved it to the front yard of my neighbor's house. That's insane. And I never, ever have been triggered again. That's crazy. And you know what though? Like that doesn't sound- It happened on Zoom. That's nuts. But like, you know what the, like you referring to your brain as a file cabinet, every person that I have talked to on this podcast that has been through a trauma that has gone through some sort of trauma therapy has referred to it that same exact way. So I had- Uh, a rape survivor talk about doing Mm -hmm. EMDR trauma therapy. And she talked Uh about that, how like it was explained to her, like your brain is a filing cabinet and needed to file somewhere. I had Amber Newberry, who was also a rape survivor who talked about Mm -hmm. these healing prayers and how they would like pray through what happened um, and insert like Jesus into the memory and things like that. Mm -hmm. And just like, but basically what I'm saying is that every person that I've talked to that's been through a trauma has had like a slightly different, like, trauma healing journey Mm -hmm. after, but it's all kind of similar. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like you all say like similar themes, you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Of like how the brain works and how we need to learn how to like file these traumatic memories because our brain Mm -hmm. has nowhere to put them. You know, I think that that's fascinating. Yeah. I really, I'm surprised because that's not the type of thing that I would be able to like mentally accept could happen. Right. But it's extremely successful for me and for my sister. We did this well over a year ago. Wow. And have, have never had those triggers again. And so I, I really feel like people have such a, like I said, a stigma about hypnotism, but mm. I think it's a really valuable tool for people. Like for me, I mean, there are so, so many people have experience such greater trauma than I have and such greater trauma than like having this one reoccurring memory of coming across stones, you know? And so to me, that's a really powerful tool. If people, um, need to kind of stop being triggered, like I get it. I didn't forget it. I remember every single detail, but I'm not triggered when I don't want to be thinking about it. Yes. It's in a different part of my brain in that filing cabinet. So that's, I think it's just a very practical, helpful thing for people with trauma. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. Um, So, oh, so talk to me about how your sister is processing the fact that she's lost a husband and also like her kids have lost their father. I think that the hardest thing was the kids, her kids, because um, my kids had their own thing, but for her kids, they had lost their dad and, um, so we were, we had to be extremely careful in the the week or 10 days after this happened. Um, we talked to the kids a lot about how we felt he had had a mental break that okay. this wasn't who he really was. Um, and we're very honest with them, about, them about his shortcomings, but we did feel like this was behavior that was not the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we tried to create for them some closure. So we had um, a graveside ceremony for him. And Jason threw flowers on his uh, casket. And, you know, we'll never forget that. And Jason would have been just as happy to spit on it. But I'm sure he knew that her kids were there and (sighs) they needed to have this sense that we were not just going to judge him for this one thing that he had done, that he was larger than that one event. So, and my sister went out of her way. Like he, as I was saying before about him being superstitious, he was very worried about being cremated when he died because he believed that he would not go to heaven. So my sister went and, you know, had to have him embalmed. She had to buy this, you know, she bought a very expensive, beautiful casket because the kids were going to see it because we were just very strategic, like wow. realizing, like our kids are going to look back on this and we don't want them to ever feel like we did not give him his due. We did not honor him as their father. We did not do what had to be done, um, you know, because we didn't really want to do any of those things, but we felt like that was really, really important for them. And we still, to this day, like sometimes we try to just talk casually about him, like, uh, you know, oh, remember when your dad used to do this? Or, oh, you know, your dad used to cook fried chicken all the time. Or, you know, just we're we're not talking the context of this event, Mm -hmm. talking just more generally and trying to give them a sense that it's okay to care about him and to love him. And, Mm -hmm. you know, but one of his son, his oldest son is actually um, 
his son with his first wife who okay. passed away. Uh, but we're very close to him. We've had him since he was eight. So we're, we consider Carrie, Carrie and I consider him to be ours, but you know, right after this, he got his dad's name tattooed across his neck. And <laughs> so like him walking hard. In with that, right. Like this memorial and yeah. the date and his other son, her, their other son has also gotten a tattoo of the date that, that this happened. And I've just kind of said, well, yeah, that's the date that your dad died, but that's also the date that your mom survived. Yes. You know? And so, and I think that we've, I don't know, we've done our best to be really aware of the decisions we're making and to try not to traumatize our children more than they were already. I mean, that is huge. Like the fact that you guys had like a gravesite ceremony and like the fact that Jason like put flowers on his grave, like that's very big of you guys. Like that really, really is. I can't even imagine how hard that must've been to stand there and like mm-hmm. try to memorialize this guy. I, I just remember standing there and looking and seeing his coffin and thinking that was supposed to be two coffins for my yeah. sister. Like I just had that moment thinking that, you know, but again, and you're a mom, you know, like yeah, moms will go to all sorts of lengths to try to keep their children as healthy and safe and, you know, self-assured as they can. And mm-hmm. so there's only so much we can do, but we did try. And my sister definitely made just a superhero effort <laughs> to make sure that, and she still does just to make sure that they, we did the best we could by them. Yeah, that's that's amazing. So did you, like practically speaking, did you move? Or like, are you guys like living in that house? We're living in this house and it took, this happened in August and until December, our house was, we had a shattered back window. <sighs> we had blood on the walls and the staircase. We had the floor partially ripped up. Oh and, my gosh. Yeah, so it was kind of like, you were living in a crime scene. Yeah, that's what we were. And waiting for insurance and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. And um, even now we mostly live upstairs. Like we've, you know, reclaimed that space. And that was in kind of the big like family living room area. And I've actually put a pool table there and a ping pong table and try to like- Changed it. Change it completely. Yeah. Um, but we're we're sort of in the process of relocating. My sister sold her house. We bought some land about 40 minutes away where we would kind of want to create our forever commune. <laughs> <laughs> I so, love it. Um, she, I'm going to probably move a few years later than she does and build a few years later, but um, we are kind of moving away. Um, I don't think we necessarily really associate we're still having holidays at my house. We're Mm -hmm. still, you know, people feel very comfortable here. I don't think that they are immediately triggered when they're in my house, but yeah. yeah. What was that like for Jason? Like, so who ended up calling him? Was it the neighbor? She called and called. He didn't pick up the phone. Because he has another number. Jason, but he was sleeping. No, he was sleeping. Um, I got to the hospital and I told you there were cops with me the whole time. So one Mm -hmm. of the police officers let me use her cell phone. I called and called and called. He didn't pick up. Oh my gosh. You're like, Um, I'm literally shot. This is very, that's just classic though. You know what I mean? So um, the only, you know, I don't know phone numbers. Me neither. So the only phone number I remembered was his mother's landline. So I called, no one picked up. I called again. It was like maybe four in the morning. And I started talking like, it's me. I've been shot. I need you to pick up right now. And so his mom picked up and I told her and I said, I need you to, he was with his brother. So I said, call Jason's brother. Yes. Tell him. So that's how he found out. Um, His brother kind of coming in, waking him up. And then they were just like racing to kind of get back. And at the time, like he... He was under the impression, like he just talked to me for a few minutes on the phone, but he was under the impression this was some sort of big accident. Like, oh, 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 really understand what had happened. And he would tell you he didn't understand until after he'd seen me in the hospital, he went home and that whole floor was covered with blood and he was crying, cleaning up the blood on the floor. Oh, so, and that's when I think it really hit him. Now I have a really, one of my good friends, his name is John, who I've taught for, with for years and, um, someone I really love and trust. And, um, you know, usually if I need someone to take care of my kids, it's my sister. So, um, I called him at like five in the morning, woke him up. And I was like, 
you know, my daughter had been at the beach and I'm like, she's on her way back. I need you to come get her and spend the day with her because mm-hmm. I knew, and he's, he's like my parents age. He's a little mm-hmm. bit older. And, but I knew that if she wanted to talk about it, he would say the right thing. If she yeah. didn't want to talk about it, he would find other things for her to do. And so he spent the day cooking with her and taking mm-hmm. her out to eat and just doing these like really nice things. So that again, someone who is helping my kids not to be more traumatized than they already were going to be. Totally. Uh, so that's another person I just remember showed us great, great kindness and, you know, helping us. Yeah. What do you attribute your survival to that night? I think it's a really hard question. I, I definitely always give credit to active shooter training. And, um, I try to talk about that a lot with people and that I, it would not have occurred to me to fight back. If I had not had that training, I would have thought, well, if we can keep him talking till the police get here, um, then he, you know, we'll be able to get out of this. I would, it would never have occurred to me to take action. I'm not like the type of person to attack someone else. Like, yeah. uh, so, and when we saw all the da- the dash cam and the, the body cams and stuff, all the police were outside and heard us screaming. We were screaming when we had attacked him or when we were like, you know, trying to get the gun away from him. We were screaming and all that is on their dash cams and they were not even considering coming in. They were Why? not. I don't know. They had, they were getting into position. They were trying to figure out what was going on. They were very confused that we were living next door to each other and trying to figure out which house to go into. And oh, stuff like that. okay. So, but it was, it was disturbing. I'm extremely thankful to the police. So I'm not trying to say anything. Oh, of course. Negative about the police because they saved our lives. This yeah. police officer who did what he did. But it it was disturbing and it confirmed what I was taught in active shooter training, which is you do have to do, you have to take action. Yeah, that's, okay. I have two things to say about that. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I appreciate what you say. Of course, yes. Like you guys owe your lives, like your sister, especially like, thank God that guy on his last shift. And I know your sister wrote a beautiful op-ed piece that I read where she was basically like, yo, listen, like we need to like give credit where credit is due. Like police officers are put in these like life or death situations. They have a split second to make a decision. And if the man who shot your brother-in-law, if he had hesitated for one more second, your sister would probably be dead. So, you know, thank God for him being there and doing what he did. Um, But the other thing I wanted to say is that I think that that's so interesting about the active shooter training, because when I was interviewing Rachel Henry, she was raped in her home. So there was like intruders that came in and raped her in her home. Mm -hmm. She said, she was like, you know, I, now granted it was three on one. So like Mm -hmm. afterwards when she spoke to people, they said like, likely there was nothing you could have done like three on one. But Mm -hmm. she was like, I just kind of took the posture of like, I'm just going to do whatever they ask me to do. And then maybe they won't kill me and maybe they won't kill my kids, Mm -hmm. which is like a very, in my opinion, like logical thought process. Mm -hmm. But she said she did talk to like a self-defense person afterward that said like, you could have tried like being like, get out of here. Like I have a gun. Like they were like, sometimes even just speaking to them in an intense way would possibly make them leave. And so I think that that's interesting, those parallels with the active shooter training, where it's like, I think that as humans, we all naturally kind of think like, just, just don't do, don't make any sudden movements and everyone's going to be fine. But like actually taking action is what's needed. Well, and I think that's especially true when your life is being threatened. And we were very confident that he was going to kill us. Like we had yeah. no doubt. We knew that was what was going to happen. I will say I talked to someone who, a teenager who survived a sexual assault. And she felt very um, guilty about it because of my story. Because she felt like she should have fought back. And why couldn't uh-huh. I do that? And so I think it's really important like for people to realize like freezing and surviving, like the goal is survival. And yes, me, it required fighting back, but sometimes people aren't going to kill you and they're going to do something you, they're going to do something invasive, something you don't like, but your goal is to survive. And so freezing, freezing can also be an appropriate response. And I just, but I think people should have it in their brain that 
okay, but you could fight back. Yeah. And then you make that decision about what the best thing is to do. But I don't, you know, I, it was really painful for me to hear that she felt that way when mm. hearing my story, because I, I would never want, I don't feel that way. I would never want someone to feel that I did what was right. And they didn't because we, both survived. Yes. we both survived. So we both made the right choice in my opinion. You're right. Yeah. That's, I love that. What advice would you have for someone who finds themselves in a situation like, like you were in, like a violent type of situation, maybe not obviously with a gun or something, but they find themselves in a threatening type of situation. What is your advice to them? I mean, like I said, I think you need to have fighting back as an option. I think mm -hmm. women don't. I, I wasn't the, I was a secondary target for my brother-in-law in a lot of ways because I had not been dealing with any sort of emotional um, abuse from him or anything like that. I think usually when, you know, if it had just been my sister, I don't know if she would have reacted that way because mm -hmm. she was the primary target for a long time. And so yeah. that might've been different for her, but I, I do feel like people need to be willing to fight back. My students right now are very nervous about school shootings and things like that. And they're always saying, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I'm like, we're going to fight back, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. because I think, and I've been seeing in recent school shootings, people have been fighting back, which yeah. is great. Yes. And um, I think that's very empowering. And I think women, women need, um, need to be willing to fight back too. That yeah. being said, I listen to true crime podcasts all the time. And I've listened to several where women have fought back, shot their accuser and or their abuser and ended up in jail mm -hmm. for murder. So, I mean, yeah. I just think it's very gray and there's a lot, we just need to, as women have a lot of different options and have thought through things ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, wow. You seriously, like you and your sister, you're heroes. Like the way you handled that, the way you got the kids out, the way you lunged for the gun, like so many parts of your story. I'm just like in awe of you and your strength and your bravery. Like I cannot imagine. I can't imagine. And I am just like in awe of you guys. And I'm just so appreciative of you sharing your story with us. Well, I appreciate that, but you know me and you know that I'm no different than you. And I think that's that's what's important. Like for a long time, women have sat back and they've taken it and they've, they're victimized all the time. I see yeah. all the time on the news. And I think it's really important for women to be empowered and to realize that they, it is possible to fight back and it is possible to save yourself. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just think that's really important. Yeah. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, seriously, for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for doing this interview. I know that so many people are going to be just like blown away by this and get lots of good information from it for real. I appreciate it so much. Of course. It was so good to see you. You too. Thanks so much. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CaitlinElliott.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And hey, if you want to toss us a five-star rating, I would love you forever. Check us out next week for another new episode. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at so.what.else. Editing and all that stuff by Matt Carpenter with Parable Productions. Parable Productions.